Hello everyone, it's August 23rd, 2022. It's a big show. First, we're discussing those Artemis landing site candidates. Also, Dennis is back in. He brought us an interview with Chris Canella and Mahadevan Krishnan of Benchmark Space Systems. They're going to tell us about a new kind of hybrid propulsion. Okay, let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 373 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. Well, welcome back, Dennis. Thanks. You guys did a great show yesterday. Or yesterday. Last week. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feels like yesterday, though. Yeah. Uh, so now you have to, like, tell us about the, the SmallSat conference, because we didn't really get to talk about it or hear about it. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I actually didn't end up going, but I was able to get some awesome interviews with some of the people that were making some big waves there. So it was pretty great um, in terms of interacting with people remotely, which is kind of what I did last year when it was virtual. Uh, but it's too bad, and I hope next year to be able to actually, you know, go in person. So we've got three interviews that we're going to be airing. What, was there any particular theme that you hit with all three interviews? Well, two of them were related to uh, debris and uh, uh, collision avoidance. Um which is kind of a really big thing, obviously, in general. Uh, so, yeah, when it comes to small satellites, they're trying to think of innovative solutions. And so two of them had that theme together. Um, and one of them that was selling essentially a, uh, a collision avoidance kit uh, also had paired up and came up with a hybrid propulsion system that I thought was really, really cool. Because um, it's not hybrid as in hybrid propellants. It's hybrid as in it's both chem prop and electrical prop on the same satellite. And so you have that control of, you know, large delta V burns versus smaller uh, keeping with the with the electric. And so that was really fun to talk with them and get into the, <laughs> the details about that. Yeah, And then also uh, next week, I think we'll probably air the episode on an upcoming suborbital launch, which is really cool. And I learned some things about how you package payloads on suborbital flights that I had no idea about previously. Oh, cool. It's, it's going to be really fun to listen to an interview that I didn't sit in on. <laughs> as far as packaging for a suborbital flight, I, yeah, I didn't know you yeah. did much different, except you don't have to, you don't have to pack for a long trip. <laughs> That's about the only <laughs> thing I know. <laughs> so in the news, um, we have some Artemis 3 landing site candidates. And apparently, what, there's 13 of them, and they're all basically near the South Pole. And they're all, well, I don't want to give away too much. We're going to discuss it. But basically, the things to consider here, and I think we talked about this months and months ago, is that, you know, you have to deal with how much exposure is the spacecraft and astronauts going to have to daylight and how much to shadow and how much of it's permanent and so on and so forth. So I guess that those were the main considerations here. Plus, this is a very interesting, at least scientifically interesting part of the moon, right? It's funny because uh, Mike in the chat, uh, Mike Stewart of uh, Apollo Restoration fame, <laughs> uh, Mike in the chat uh, posted or replied to somebody else who posted the link and said, ah, yes, the Sea of Tranquility, the Sea of Storms from our, and like just listed off all the <laughs> landing sites for Apollo. It's just like, yeah, that's kind of fun. But yeah, I I'm assuming, Dennis, this this is like right up your alley, right? Where are we going? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, David, you pretty much nailed it. It's a whole bunch of mountains, rims, and ridges. <laughs> so yeah. we're all clustered around the South Pole, all within six degrees of it. So we're talking very close to there. But yeah, they, they mm -hmm. picked they picked these high enough elevations. Yeah, yeah. So Mike in the chat is pointing out that they went from those great names of the Mari Tranquilitatis, you know, <laughs> you know that kind yeah. of classic. Uh, Admanson Rim. Yeah. 
And so we've got uh, among these candidates, uh, Connecting Ridge and (laughs) Connecting Ridge Extension. Yeah, it doesn't pop, but... Hadley Delta, it's not. Yeah, Hadley (laughs) Delta. Sounds like a portion of a metro line. (laughs) (laughs) Really does. (laughs) And I mean, I guess Delagrange Rim 1 and Delagrange Rim 2. Oh, and and Nobile Rim 1 and Nobile Rim 2. So a couple of sites have got little uh, little cop-out uh, names. But yeah, Connecting mm-hmm. Ridge and Connecting Ridge Extension, I agree, are a little silly. <laughs> a little less grandiose. And I guess the most descriptive one is just Peak Near Shackleton. Yeah. Just describing. I mean, I guess Connecting Ridge is about as descriptive as you get as well, but it <laughs> can't leave out well, Peak yeah, Near you Shackleton. Know, right. Uh, so we're going to be landing on the peak. Which uh, which which peak? Oh, you know the peak near Shackleton Crater. Like it sounds like a rural uh, a rural town name. Mm. Colin says the the names all have a shortfall of gravitas. <laughs> Chubby well, says that well, one so. over there. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So right. So there's 13 of them. You can check out the list on you know any uh, website that's uh, any news story that has them all spelled out. But we've already kind of covered the hits but yeah and 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 the regions themselves are uh 15 by 15 uh postage stamps i think i think they're a bit bigger than 15 postage stamps on a side but 15 kilometers on a side right (laughs) but yeah and i guess uh it's funny of all of them if we got as close to the south pole as possible that would be connecting ridge and so i guess fingers crossed for that one Uh, but yeah so so uh like you're saying continue or david you mentioned continuous sunlight um uh, for six and a half days, which is what they really needed. That's the uh, nominal mission length. Uh, a lot of this is tied to the uh, launch window where they want to go. So that's why they wanted, uh, I guess this adds up to hundreds of sites, potentially. That's kind of the idea was uh, not just for the scientifically interesting locations and being close to these permanently shadowed regions and water ice and all that good stuff, but also to uh, make sure that no matter when they launch, because Artemis 3, how many years is that going to be from now, right? This is way in the future, but uh, whenever it does finally launch, they want to make sure that they uh, have somewhere to go. Uh, that That's not going to be the thing that's constraining them. Hopefully, uh, uh, anything that scrubs a, a launch would not be, uh, oh, we just, our window's closed. We can't land anywhere if we launch uh, at this time when the rocket's ready to go. So uh, I don't really know what else to say about that other than uh, at T minus 18 months, um, they're going to narrow it down, and even for a given launch window, they're going to have a few uh, open and available. And so I guess we have to wait another couple years until we can get an idea of where the uh, first people since uh, Apollo 17 <laughs> are going to actually land and step foot on the moon. It's a little overwhelming how close we're getting, and mm. like also knowing that we're we're not getting <laughs> yeah. So there was one consideration, which was, like you said, is it going to be in permanent sunlight or permanent shadow or, or how close to those regions of permanent shadow? One thing that was in the article that I hadn't considered was that you want this continuous sunlight. I don't know if this is just for the mission or because they are scouting for future permanent bases, is that you don't want to have that cycle between hot and cold. You know, it was just like you don't want that temperature change. And um, because I thought, you know, being exposed to permanent sunlight, that that would be problematic, right? Um, I mean, this is all, again, kind of a bit more in the future and i don't know exactly what uh the plans are for setting up any kind of a permanent moon base but mm-hmm. um i guess over a 6.5 day mission wouldn't matter too much but the idea that you would want permanent sunlight 
um, I think, or maybe permanent shadow. I'm not sure, but I guess somewhere close to that region where you could be, you know, between the two, or you could pick one, perhaps. I don't know, but um, yeah, it was it was just something that I never thought about that you wouldn't want that temperature change constantly happening every month or so, so right. or I guess exactly every month, right? Um, or two weeks, whatever. No, that's that's cool. I, yeah, I hadn't considered that either. But yeah, I guess you only have to design for one, one uh, yeah. thermal situation as opposed to extreme cycling. So uh, so the Artemis 1 SLS rolled out to the pad, right? Yeah, so speaking of launch windows, <laughs> Artemis 1 is rolled out to the pad. <laughs> and it's got its three launch windows. Jeez, coming up. It's actually going to be a uh, upcoming spaceflight event, which is yeah. kind of ridiculous to go and write that down in the show notes. August 29th, September 2nd, and September 5th are these three windows. And one thing I thought was interesting is that the, the launch azimuth when you're going to the moon um, changes uh, throughout the day as body is revolving around the Earth. But what, if I've read this correctly, and I thought this was interesting, they, they say that all the launch azimuths at the beginning of each window starts at 62 degrees, uh, which would put uh, SLS into a, a 38 inclination orbit. 38 degree inclination orbit, um, but that they all end at 108 degrees. Actually, that's a lot less weird than I thought because my brain, when I saw 108, I read yeah. 180 and I'm like, how Whoa. on earth are you launching south <laughs> from the Cape? But yeah, 62 to 108. Okay, so that's a little north of east and a little south of east. So that's very reasonable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 38 to 32 degrees inclination. So that's not too mm. big of a deal. Right, right, right. Okay. That solves my big question that I had about this, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, what's, uh, I don't know what else to say so much about it other than just uh, the images that appear on Twitter and social media are just so great um, of watching this beast roll out there and watching everybody get so excited posing around it. <laughs> you know what I saw that was really cool is they've got a big banner or they had a big banner, I think on the mobile launch platform. I'm, I believe it's down now. Um, but it, it was just a big banner that said like Artemis, but the background of the banner was a high resolution photo of the moon. And it turns out that it was that that photo was, um, taken or processed. I mean, he captured the images and then processed a bunch of them together by, um, James A. McCarthy, uh, who's a amateur stellar photography hobbyist who I hmm. have followed on uh, social media for ages because he produces some of the best images of the moon that I've ever seen uh, amateur or no. The wallpaper for my phone is currently one of his photos and um, he lives in Sacramento. And like, so it was really cool when I lived in Chico, like this, these photos were taken just, you know, two hours away from me. It was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, like NASA actually used one of his images on a giant banner that actually hung on moon hardware. It's very cool. Uh, quick self correction burn here. It's not James A. McCarthy. It's a James McCarthy because James A. McCarthy is an actor on Supernatural apparently, <laughs> but Andrew McCarthy, uh, if you Google him, you'll find him. Uh, his Twitter handle is a James McCarthy, um, M C C A R T H Y. And yeah, really just, I mean, glamour shots of the moon. The moon has never looked better. So translating on over to our next story, a Russian spacewalk cut short. So there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a battery situation, I guess, with a uh, spacesuit, which we don't think about that too often, do we? I mean, or at least I don't. I don't know. Of all the things that can go wrong with your spacesuit, you right. need to change out some batteries. More battery talk to come later. Yeah, this is just <laughs> a... It's a battery heavy episode. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you guys gave the the short and sweet last week, I thought it was you know it was nice you know touching on this, but I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit more about the context of why there's been this flurry of sidewalk or sidewalk of spacewalks on the uh, Russian segment, and uh, mm-hmm. in particular what happened with this one because there was some pretty uh, fun back and forth I thought between uh, uh, Oleg Artemyev, one of the two spacewalkers, the one who had the the issue with his suit and um, uh, ground control. And so, um, but yeah, so anyway, so this, so this was uh, VKD 54, right? Where VKD is you take, you know, EVA and you just transit, translate it directly into Russian. And those are the initials. And um, they, they started behind schedule, but uh, the, the whole reason for these is to set up the arm. And anyone can say that, but what does that really mean? Uh, like, what is the ERA, the ERA, going to actually do? And that is what I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, so, so this, the, the latest arm on the space station, the ERA, the European robotic arm, um, its main tasks, uh, because we know the time on station is running out and right, the Russians are going to leave after 2024, uh, whatever that means. Mm. And so, but the, the kind of main task that they're getting ready for is uh, if you just think about where Nauka is, which is where the arm is, um, Nauka is sitting or is coming out uh, on the Nader side of the Russian segment. And then a little forward of it, also coming out on the Nader Earth-facing side, is Rosvet. And so they're parallel to each other. And Rosvet, when they launched it way back in the day, and they were thinking Nauka was going to be on the station like 10 years ago or whatever, uh, they stuck a, re- a radiator on the side of Rosvet, as well as a experiment airlock. And so that's, if you ever see Rosvet, you see there's a big block, which is essentially the radiator uh, folded up, accordion style. And then there's a little cylinder sticking out, which is the airlock. And so that's basically what all of these uh, uh, spacewalks that have been happening this year, uh, there's been a number, uh, specifically to get the uh, era up and running, the arm, so that it can then reach across the way and grab the radiator, install that, and then grab the airlock and install that both onto Nauka. And so that's the whole idea for why they're doing these spacewalks. That is really cool because I've seen that radiator and had not really known why it was there or really given it much thought. And that's that's really fantastic. Yeah, I feel like of all the of all the modules, Rosvet is probably like the least talked about. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, it's 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 gonna be its time to shine soon. Okay, so this was part of it, and in particular, the goals of this uh, uh, spacewalk were to put some cameras on the arm and then test out the arm using the little uh, EMMI interface so they can manually uh, control it from the outside of the station, which is really fun. These cameras are called uh, CLUs, or uh, Camera and Lighting Units. And so they, uh, so the two spacewalkers, uh, Artemyev and then uh, uh, Denis Matveyev, uh, they, they come out, they uh, go and strella over to uh, Nauka uh, using the crane, uh, which I love. And uh, they get to the one joint in the arm and they install one of these CLU units. Um, They also remove a ring that was on the arm, uh, the end effector uh, uh, from back during launch, I guess, just to kind of hold things in place. The arm uh, during this was uh, in its flamingo pose where it's only got one end connected to station, the other end's kind of sticking out and then kind of tipped back in a hook sort of pattern like a flamingo looks like another uh, an interesting thing about this too is that once they put the the cameras on sometimes ground control would essentially turn on these lasers i guess within the cameras and so part of the spacewalk involved don't look towards the arm <laughs> for the next 
you know, huh. minute or whatever uh, while they were going to fire the lasers. And so, yeah. So uh, everything was going fine. That worked well. They then translated over and started working on installing another uh, CLU. And uh, over two hours in, suddenly Artemyev's battery voltage drops, like you talked about. And so here was the back and forth, because they're literally talking about, you know, oh, you know, it's not screwing in, you know, the kind of things they talk about typically out of spacewalk. Oh, I'm having trouble screwing this in right, or, you know, where's that tool? Can you hand this over here? And then suddenly ground control just says, was just out of the blue, Oleg, you need to go back towards MLM2, which is Poisk, the airlock. What happened? <laughs> and so Oleg had no idea what was going on, and he basically says, you know, like, what's, uh, what do I do when I get there? And they said, uh, then you need to go back to the airlock. And uh, do not worry, everything is fine. And he's like, oh, me worry? No way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was uh, uh, the kind of conversation that they had about you just need to get back uh, towards MLM2, okay? What do I do when I get there? Go in the airlock. And so they <laughs> did. <laughs> uh, Matveyev uh, secured everything while Oleg basically sat. It sounds like he sat in the airlock for the better part of an hour while they were trying to troubleshoot things, and then they realized they couldn't fix what was going on, the battery dropping. They were worried about he could lose communications and his fan could stop working. There could be all sorts of problems. and so. Uh, but he was safe because uh, he very quickly was able to Strela back to Poisk and uh, get in there, and then plug, him, plug himself into the umbilicals uh, and get, you know, power from the station through his uh, Orlan suit. And so, yeah, um, and they just, uh, again, remotely put the arm into a safe location and called the, ER, uh, the EVA uh, four hours and one minute until they closed the hatch. And so it was supposed to be a little shy of seven hours, so they had a lot to do, which... Uh, is a shame because one of those things would have been, like I said, using that EMMI uh, user's manual to manually move the crane around. Uh, and then also something that they were supposed to do on a previous spacewalk, they keep kind of falling behind, which happens in space, but uh, they, uh, Strela 2, um, that crane is currently sitting over near uh, Zarya, uh, near the forward side of Zarya. And so the idea would be to translate over there and then extend Strela 2 to Poisk. So now from Poisk, you basically have access uh, you know, fore and aft along the station and then uh, up and down uh, along the station towards uh, Nauka. And so that's how they get around. You don't have a uh, uh, an RMS that you can mm -hmm. attach yourself to. Or at least not yet. Um, they will put a, a little workstation on uh, ERA and be able to zoot around that way in the future uh, if needed. But yeah, so that was just some details on it that I thought were uh, pretty interesting. So what's scheduled for... The future as far as uh, finishing oh, right. up this work. Yeah, so so yeah, I guess um, looking forward, uh, one, it's worth noting that now we have issues with both types of spacesuits on station, right? <laughs> you had given the twist if with Luca Parmitano, and we talked about how um, Waters recently, as earlier this year, was still getting into uh, Matthias Maurer's helmet. And so mm -hmm. that issue hasn't totally gone away, or at least a different one involving water intrusion uh, resurfaced. And hopefully this battery one is as simple as uh, just replacing or updating or doing something, charging the battery. Um, there was some kind of maybe, like, we don't know what happened. So hopefully it's not something more serious because, yeah, the next steps are to essentially go out there and then do those things that I had mentioned, right? Extending the Strela boom, uh, checking out that the arm actually can work under the EMMI. But then after that, yeah, then it is reach on over and yoink the radiator, radiator stick it onto Nauka, and then in a future one, reach over, grab the uh, 
experiment airlock and then stick that onto Nauka as well. And also, um, I think the first thing that they're going to have the arm grab as a test of its, you know, abilities to manipulate things is going to be this portable worksite that I mentioned before. That'll let the uh, uh, spacewalkers be able to get moved around by the arm itself. And so that's it. I don't know if you do that and then you say, okay, peace out. We're going to, uh, you know, work on our new station or whatever, which, you know, I am a little skeptical is ever going to actually fly, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that that's all that I know about as far as the upcoming uh, VKDs because they've got a few more planned. And in fact, it was kind of interesting. Uh, this one was 54. The previous one, they didn't give a number to because they wanted 54 to be uh, when they were doing these tasks, but they had fallen far enough behind. So the last one mm -hmm. they did, because it was with Samantha Cristoforetti, they call it the VKD ESA spacewalk. So they were able to preserve the numbers while still moving forward with this. VKD 52, VKD 53, VKD 53, <laughs> VKD 53.5. I don't want to use the most played out joke, 53, part two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's do three short and sweets. And Dennis, you're back, so you get the first one this week. Hey, thank you. Northrop Grumman to start astronaut training program. Northrop Grumman and Star Harbor have announced a collaboration for developing an astronaut training program to accompany the former space station concept. As part of NASA's commercial LEO destinations, or CLDs, Northrop plans to spend $125.6 million to design a free flying station. In addition to training, Star Harbor will use the station as one of the LEO destinations for its on-orbit services and training for its customers. Next up, Starship gets commercial satellite customer. Japanese satellite operator SkyPerfect JSAP has picked SpaceX's Starship to launch its Superbird 9 satellite in 2024. While SpaceX has contracts for Starship as a lunar lander and plans for the Polaris Dawn and Dear Moon missions, this is one of the first contracts announced by a commercial satellite operator. With a dry mass of under 3 metric tons, the geostationary satellite Superbird 9 would likely not fly alone. Another company, AST Space Mobile, has an agreement with SpaceX to book both Falcon 9 and Starship flights for its broadband satellite constellation. And finally, Spaceplane Buddies. China's secret spacecraft, launched August 4th and presumed to be a space plane, has not spent its time on orbit alone. Seven additional objects have been spotted in close proximity, though most are assumed to be debris from the CZ-2F upper stage. Two are suspected to be spacecraft released from the secret vehicle, perhaps for proximity operations practice and or inspection. During the vehicle's presumed first mission back in 2020, it was spotted with a single companion. While CNSA has not released anything interesting on the vehicle, one of the fairings from the launch was put on display at a school and appears to sport small nacelle-like extrusions to accommodate slightly longer wings than the fairing's 4.2 meter diameter. Isn't that weird? So I guess the... Because I always wonder, like, where's the speculation that it's a space plane coming from other than just every news site saying it's speculated to be a space plane? I wonder if there was a Based source... Based on how long it spends up and the fact that it comes back and lands. So it could, it could be a capsule. We talked about this two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It could be a capsule, but it doesn't seem super likely. Right. With the, the language of uh, a landing site versus a landing ellipse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we have a couple corrections or elaborations. The first one is from uh, Ben. So, <laughs> Ben, take it away. It's from me to you. So, last week, David, we were talking about um, the Mastin bankruptcy filing. And you, ha- we, we talked about how uh, Astrobotic had come in and put in a bid for all of their assets. And your question was, well, if that's a bid for everything and somebody wants to come in and just bid on a couple of parts of their assets, could they do that? And how do you decide whose bid is higher? And so actually, it looks like this might be an irreversible process. Initially, Intuitive Machines had made a bid, um, but only on the SpaceX launch credit um, and not the rest of their assets. So then when when Astrobotic comes in, their bid is for everything, and that establishes a new minimum. Uh, 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 I say new, new, assuming that the intuitive machines bid had been accepted. But yeah, so I, I read another source. I did, uh, like, I guess I paid attention to <laughs> to what I was reading a little better. I don't know. Um, but I found that little tidbit in a Space News article, and I thought it'd be good to to come back and, and give you a little more completeness there. Cool. So next up, uh, we have Espen Erkdahl. So this is an actual correction for us, right? Or, well, no, this is a question. No, it's, it's a question, um, yeah. From someone who's not us. So, and this is about the SLS flight termination software or flight termination system batteries. And we were both kind of a little bit, I don't know, or at least I was a little bit perplexed and I thought I had it figured out, but then I realized maybe I didn't. But now I think I understand it pretty well. Um, but this is actually about why this is not an issue for other rockets. And in this particular example, um, he cites Falcon 9. So um, why is uh, these time constraints not such a big issue with something like a Falcon 9, which to me seems like I don't know the details, but you know, you're going to go into it. But it seems like it just wouldn't be because it's a Falcon 9 and it's not SLS. I mean, there are better ways of designing or inspecting flight termination systems, which is a range safety you know requirement. Um, mm-hmm. That There are ways of doing that that are not going to be nearly as complex as SLS. Uh, so and this is probably the case for most other rockets, too, because SLS is just it's big and it's complex. It's big, it's complex, and it's a little pork barrel-y, right? Like, right, yeah. The, people cite this as as a wholly bad thing, and I don't, I don't think it necessarily is. SLS is mandated by Congress, and Congress says, well, we're going to build this in the U.S., and we're going to spread this money around uh, domestically as best we can. And so there's a lot of push to collect, have bits and pieces of SLS built all over the United States. Um, it, it really follows the Apollo model. So I don't, I don't think Apollo necessarily uh, used that model because it was a good way to spread money around the United States. I think mostly it was because they had no choice. Importing things was a lot harder back then. Um, importing things was a lot less, uh, politically acceptable back then. Like, you know, especially if you try to import them from Russia. And so, um, SLS is big, it's complex, it's made everywhere. And so doing the integration work can often be difficult, um, when there's so little like vertical integration, I guess. Um, but I believe the answer. So the, the question is if SLS is so persnickety and has so many limits placed on the launch uh, opportunities available within a window. If it, if SLS is like that, why isn't that the same case for 
anybody else? Why have we never heard of Falcon Heavy rolling out to the pad, missing an opportunity, rolling back out, having to do all this work over multiple days and going back out, or Atlas V or Delta IV Heavy? And I, I believe the answer to that question is most likely SLS takes forever to move from the VAB out to the pad. Um, mm -hmm. The restrictions may be identical between these different launch vehicles, but because SLS takes so long to move back and forth, it, it really puts a visible kink that we don't see other places. Now, there's a second answer that I found that may impact this, and this is like a non-exclusive or. It could be one, the other, or both, and I think it's probably both. But um, SpaceX in particular, I believe that they can charge their FTS batteries on the pad. I don't know that for sure, and I don't know why their certification would allow that. But SLS, um, to charge their FTS battery, they have to physically remove the battery from the vehicle. They can't just, you know, plug into a port on the outside of the vehicle. And to remove it, they have to go back to the VAB. I did a bunch of research, and I really kind of got bogged down in the details of how these batteries are constructed and selected. And it is really interesting. Like they have to have matched cells so they can manufacture a bunch of cells and then they have to bucket them into voltage ranges, I believe. And then they do all this testing. Once they take all the different cells and hook them up uh, to get their higher voltage, they, you know, hook them up in, in series. Um, once they do that, they then have to test the entire the entire battery with all these different cells and see if the cells charge and discharge together if their uh if their voltages overlap because if they don't um you can wind up with basically one battery charging another battery um and it's something very close to a short circuit and it can wind up making the battery explode these are uh lithium ion batteries uh in the past um lead acid was more popular for this but today if you need high voltage and rechargeable batteries that you can test and do things with like lithium ion technology is, is really going to be what most people reach for. It's lighter, it's smaller, yada, yada. And so, yeah, I, I, I think SpaceX might actually be able to charge their battery on the pad. SLS definitely can't. So that might be an additional component. Sorry, Espen. I, I really tried to find a good solid answer. And when I was looking, all I could find was like, uh, trade studies on potting multi-cell batteries and uh, descriptions of the soldering setups that people use to construct these batteries. And and uh, I'm, I wasn't able to, to push through it and find the actual answer I needed. I also think my other alternate theory, um, going by some stuff that I read, so I still like, perhaps have a slightly different interpretation, although, although everything you said is yeah, right as far as, you know, like the batteries go, is that I think that they might have the same requirements of inspection, but maybe you can inspect it on the pad. I don't know. But if you can do those those inspections as well as recharging the batteries, yeah. then that's a big deal because they do place an emphasis on being able to like actually inspect it, not just charge the batteries, but actually look at the thing. Yeah. I don't know what they do as far as the inspection goes, but um, that's probably something that I would think with a Falcon 9, you wouldn't have to roll it back anywhere. Or at the very least, you could you know bring it down horizontal, right? And then they could maybe yeah, do even, it. Yeah, even if you do have to access the interior of Falcon 9, it's much easier to get it into the horizontal integration right. uh, facility. Um, Colin in the chat says, SLS was designed by committee, and I don't think they realized that batteries needed to be recharged. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean that, you know, that that's part of the, uh, barrel of pork kind of 
nature of SLS. It's not that people didn't realize that batteries needed to be recharged. They just went, oh, a 20-day certification, that should be fine, forgetting the integration step of what everything else had to happen in those 20 days, you know. And th those kind of implications are really hard to do without vertical integration. Um, and then uh, Colin also says, I think the Saturn V batteries were installed at the pad. And that uh, sounds really interesting. That that could well be the case. Also, I, I believe that what I saw was that SLS actually has three FTS batteries, one for the core stage and then two for the boosters. And the issue that we were talking about yesterday was specifically with the core stage FTS. It may be that the two boosters, the solid boosters uh, are much easier to uh, replace the batteries and to do the the testing and inspection so there you go that's that's our half answer okay <laughs> but a little more information i tried my best well welcome to a very special interview we have with us Chris Carella, who is the Executive Vice President of Business Development and Strategy for Benchmark Space Systems, as well as Chris Krishnan, who's the President of AAAC, Alameda Applied Sciences Corporation. And they are coming to us live from Logan, Utah at the SmallSat Conference. Chris and Krish, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Dennis. Thanks for having us today. Thank you. How has uh, SmallSat been so far for you? I, I know it, it certainly has been busy, at least from my perspective, seeing these announcements coming out. Busy, informative, exhilarating. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. It's, uh, it's been a marathon through the first couple of days so far. So we're looking forward to hair down at the social events and back to it tomorrow and Thursday. Wonderful. That's good, good, good. And so, yeah, with that, I especially appreciate taking the time for, uh, for this interview. Okay. I guess as, a, as an opening, could you tell, me, uh, tell us maybe a little bit about uh, your background, uh, how you kind of got into this whole gig, and ultimately, I guess from there, you can kind of lead into what is Benchmark Space Systems and what is AAAC, or sorry, AASC. <laughs> Too many A's. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start on the Benchmark side. So my background uh, was engineering and technical. Um, I moved over to the business development side while I was working in a Fortune 100 uh aerospace company. And that's where I developed uh, an interest in a taking to commercializing innovation and uh, commercializing tech, bringing it from the lab to the market. Um, so I was fortunate enough to do that in, in big arrow in the energy markets. And uh, most recently before jumping over to space in the EV toll markets, uh, about five years ago, Benchmark was founded in 2017 a few months after it was founded by our co-founders, Ryan McDevitt and Matt Shea, I joined up and said, you know, I'd love, this is, this is an industry I want to be in. You have a great tech. It, it's, it's a good solution that you're working on. That's, that's when things started for me at Benchmark. So I showed up as an employee number five. We've had a journey. Uh, we were focused on propulsion technologies early on. Um, we, we merged and acquired Tesseract Space in 2020, put our first systems on orbit in 2021. And uh, we've kind of, our identity has evolved into your in-space mobility partner. And as we immerse ourselves in market and, and the market informs us what they really need, what their challenges are, what solutions they're looking for, um, it's, it's really a bundled solution. It's the easy button for space um, if there is one. Um, so we're doing our best to bring different components and elements of mobility and in-space mobility together 
to make it easier for the satellite integrator and operator to to acquire that access that technology and use it. So that's the benchmark. Awesome. Can I can I ask real quick? Uh, how many employees do you have now? Oh, uh, we're up to. It's what's today's date? It's it's a day to day thing. Um, when I left for Logan, it was eighty three. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'll tell you a little bit about Alameda Applied Sciences. I did a mechanical engineering degree at the University of London and then a PhD in aerospace sciences at Princeton. And then I was on the faculty at Yale for 10 years, applied physics and mechanical engineering. I had a joint appointment. Then I moved out west, worked for a company, and then started my own Alameda Applied Sciences back in 94. My PhD was in plasma propulsion for space, NASA funded. I left that, did a whole bunch of other things. And then about five years ago, came back full circle and revisited electric propulsion. And more recently, just working out of my garage with NASA money, we developed this metal plasma thruster, which caught the eye of Benchmark, Chris Carella in particular. And it was a relationship that grew rapidly from March until now, and it's culminated in this acquisition. And I couldn't be more excited because it's an opportunity to see the fruit of all that labor actually come into practice with hundreds of units, if not thousands, flying over the next five years. Wow, that's that's incredible. I uh, had no idea just how quick a turnaround <laughs> that has been. This is uh, There's a lot of breaking stuff that's going to be happening during this interview and so in terms of news. And so, yeah, wow. Yeah, I know uh, we certainly talked about Benchmark before. Uh, anyone who's listening might recall in episode 340 at the beginning of this year, we actually talked about your Halcyon propulsion system being selected for, uh, to ride or I guess propel the Sherpa OTV vehicle. And so very cool, very cool to see uh, to see all here. So, right. So, Chris, you were uh, referencing one of the two big announcements that Benchmark has dropped and the one that brings the two of you together in particular, which is a hybrid motility package. And so without me giving really anything away, uh, could you just tell us uh, the kind of top level of what this is and then we can go from there? I'd be happy to. You know, in space, the thrust that a satellite needs can either be high thrust, define it as newtons in level, or it can be very low thrust, millinewtons. The low thrust functions get away with millinewtons because they can be done slowly, but they can be done very fuel efficiently. That's electric propulsion. The high thrust functions need chemical propulsion, and you need those for a variety of critical functions for a satellite these days, avoiding collisions, phasing into the orbit quickly so that you can start generating revenues instead of waiting for months and months, which is the case for some satellite operators today, using differential drag, for example, which is a way of doing it without propulsion, but an incredibly tedious way because you have to wait for months before your satellites are all aligned and generating revenue. With chemical propulsion that Benchmark provides, you can do that in hours, days at worst. So you look at this and you say, what is this marriage between newtons on the one hand and millinewtons on the other? And the answer is, give me a mission and I'll show you how you can do it with a package that has less mass, less volume, and still gets the job done. What's not to like about that if you're a satellite maker and a mission planner? That's what we bring to the party. And it's going to be an educational phase 
because like all disruptive new things that are there, we know these are there. We know we can make them work. We can combine them into a single GNC package, guidance, navigation, and control. But the satellite makers have to understand that, accept that. And the moment they do, things will take off. That's why we're partnered. And we intend to have, as I said, not dozens of these, but hundreds of these in orbit over the coming years. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the logic is there. I certainly see where you can kind of, you know, flip a switch and go from your high thrust to low thrust mode. This is just my own ignorance. Has anything like this flown before, even just as a, like a tech demo or beyond that? Because I, I myself have never heard of uh, this kind of a hybrid where this is a different hybrid than, you know, propellant type of hybrids where you, you have different phases of your uh, uh, fuel and oxidizer, but this is just two systems, right? The electric and the, the chem prop. And so, yeah, has, has something like this flown before? No, to our knowledge, no. And part of it is that to this day, what's traditionally happened is that satellite makers view propulsion as a sort of a black box that they acquire, and then they need to figure out how to integrate it and operate with it. And it's not in their wheelhouse quite often. And what Benchmark specializes in is focusing on this mobility solution. And the word mobility partner, you can underline partner. The idea is that they actually want to understand the mission needs and then be a turnkey solution provider so that the satellite maker can focus on what her prerogatives are, generating revenues from imaging the earth or IR or anything. And she says, you're giving me a package that's turnkey. And the way to do that is not just to avoid the tedium of their having to integrate one form of propulsion, but here you have two. And that's the reason why it hasn't been done. Because if someone says, as it is, I've got to take this chem prop and learn how to work with it. Now they're telling me I need EP2. That's a whole different ballgame. Yet it isn't. In the hands of this mobility partner, it's all the same thing. And as I said, it's easy for us to say, but finding that acceptance in the industry is a matter of time. And that's why it's not out there. I see. So that just made me think of something to get really, I guess, inside baseball. What, what is teaching a company how to use a propulsion system? What is that like? I mean, do you give them a manual? And you're like, here's the instructions when you're doing your spacecraft ops, uh, follow you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, so I'll share some feedback that, that we gather in a Pareto fashion. So in a lot of cases, well, I'll say in the past, it was at component level, and they really had to physically integrate this thing and drive individual components. Now, a lot of our peers in the industry trying to make that easier and do turnkey systems, which is what this smaller scale satellite and certainly commercial developers are looking for and needing they're integrating the tanks of the, the, the fluid systems all the way through the thruster with some level of electronics, if you're lucky. And the documentation manual on how to use that, also the thoroughness is, it varies, I'll say. So there's a lot of cases with, and, and I think this impacts propulsion adoption rate in general a little bit. There's cases where folks have had to learn how to drive each individual valve, which there's several in a system when to turn on the cat bed heaters, when to turn on tank heaters, how to read the telemetry and turn it off. And that and that's a lot of cost and time in their project. So what Benchmark's doing and has been doing on the chemical side 
And we were surprised about the the adoption and, and the interest, even from our most sophisticated customers who, who we figure are used to doing that level of granular work. But we have a modular, what we call Devo Electronics Kit that essentially says, give us a power bus, give us a comm bus, here's the manual, here's a set of 12 commands you can send, and we'll worry about what to turn on in what order so that you don't foul a cat bed or you don't misfire. And uh, so, so that's the easy button that we've been working on. We're taking that, we're, we've been funded by the Air Force to, to start an initiative, demonstrated components of that. Now we have an IRAD and more government funding, developing this GNC software layer that Chris referred to. And basically what that does is it brings it to the next level. And it's, it's essentially, I'm in point A, I want to be in point B, get me there. And so what we do is we use an onboard IMU and we use telemetry off the bus to figure out where we are and we can employ at currently it's, we can employ four or eight thrusters and do vector thrust vector control and control that maneuver so that it really is the easy button. And again, we were expecting our sophisticated customers would say, oh no, we don't want you to touch that. But they actually do even, even some of our more sophisticated customers and certainly it, it makes it less intimidating for new space folks. And that's our that's core to our mission, accessibility and sustainable space. So you got to make the technology technically feasible for these folks to adopt, mitigate all of the concerns or, or status quo, and then also make it economically feasible. So we, we work really hard to do that. We offer you know a range of tool, we have a, a really broad toolbox and MPT is a critical piece in the next step in the evolution, it's often called holy grail to have a hybrid system and super intimidating because, boy, I can't even figure one out. It slows my program down by six months and 500 to a million dollars of NRE. Um, so we're eliminating all that cost and we're doing a turnkey, plug it in. And, and in many cases, if the customer trusts us, they don't even have to, you know, during the design phase, give us complete design authority. We'll tell you exactly how we would do it as subject matter experts. These folks are camera experts. They're, they're antenna comms experts. They're not engine experts. Um, so that, that's our role right now. We're happy to be in that role. We've earned that position. And uh, Metal Plasma is going to help us get that right size combination of speed and endurance. During your description, that easy button you referenced at the, at the beginning of the interview definitely was the first thing that popped into my mind as you were describing that. Okay, great. So about the system, I had a couple questions like, so for the ChemProp side, is that, that's your Halcyon engine or is it something else? And is it mono or biprop? Yeah, good question. So the Halcyon you referenced before is actually, there's a specific name for that configuration we're, we're collaborating with, uh, with Spaceflight on, but that's our Halcyon Avant Biprop. That's the term we use for Biprop. We do offer that at a 2 Newton and 22 Newton scale today. And then Halcyon is our monoprop. And in paired with MPT, we're really targeting the hybrid with MPT and Halcyon product families for the 50 to 200, 250 kilogram class range. And in that range, it really comes down to, again, that's why we're a partner. Where are you going? What's your inclination? How fast do you want to get there? And there's a certain cutoff point where biprop makes sense. But in many cases, it, it will be a monoprop for insertion and then kick over to the, the tortoise cruise control. But in other cases, depending on where folks are going to get dropped off or 
how mobile they want to be during their their operations um, or how equipped they want to be for unplanned maneuvers they may have more total impulse and therefore cross the bridge over to the biprop region so so either or yeah and so i guess going to the other side of the the pair uh krish so i uh had seen some of these images of the system that you know was released during the big announcement at smallsat and if i could describe the, the metal propulsion thruster MPT, it essentially to me looks like a, a portable electric oven with four rectangular burners on it. Could you describe uh, the basics? Because we've talked about electric propulsion on the show, but I don't know if we, I mean, this, this sounds like something new and different. And so could you yeah, describe, I guess, the basics of the, uh, how, how it works? He's right on. It's just big enough to toast a piece of bread. So. <laughs> sure, sure. So those four things that you looked at, each of them you know, consists of a metal. It's molybdenum. It could be anything, any conducting metal. And it's pulsed. So each time you fire one of these pucks and you fire them in some sequence, like one, four, two, three, whatever you want, you're boiling off a little bit of metal on each pulse for just a few milliseconds, a few thousandths of a second. But the way you boil that metal off, it's very hot. You produce a plasma that's highly ionized, the local pressure on the surface is like 100 kilobars. It's 100,000 times an atmosphere. So it's very, very curious physics here. But at that high pressure, the plasma literally is ejected from the surface into a cone, just like a supersonic nozzle. So it's not an electromagnetic device. A lot of people are confused by this. There's no electricity or magnetism involved here. It's just using electricity to cleverly create little craters on the surface that create giant overpressure of highly ionized plasma. And when it's ejected, it screams out at 10 miles per second. Whereas an ordinary nozzle from an aircraft, a jet engine, is only at about 500 meters per second, half a kilometer per second. And from one of the halcyon thrusters and so on, it's on that order a kilometer per second. This is at 17.4 kilometers per second. That high speed simply translates in orbital mechanics through the rocket equation to you need a lot less fuel to get something done because you're going so fast. That's the key here. So it's fuel efficient, but there's always a but, right? The thrust you get from this on a good day is on the order of a millinewton. So if you need a Newton to do something, good night. Can't do it with this. And it doesn't scale up because you can't have a thousand of these. That's ridiculous. So then you realize that, okay, this is how it works. And that's the answer to your question. And you repeat the pulse. So it's a few thousandths of a second, 20 micrograms of metal turned into the screaming hot plasma that's ejected into space. And then you repeat it a second later. And then another second later. And each time you're putting in a certain packet of energy to produce all of this, say 20 joules. And if you repeat it once a second, why? You're running at 20 watts. And the thrust you get is a fraction of a millinewton. If you crank it up and say, let's fire this five times a second, you're running at 100 watts now, and the thrust is a millinewton. But the spacecraft mission planner says, for the next eight hours, I can't afford but four watts for you. You say, fine, I'll run once every five seconds, 
20 joules once every five seconds, four watts. I'll get only 40 micronewtons of thrust, but it's not zero. With 40 micronewtons working for long enough, I can move the spacecraft by a degree here, a degree there. I can do some fine pointing. I can even raise it a little bit in orbit, a kilometer or two, because that's what you need. And that's the key. This device is a cold engine that starts from being absolutely cold. It could be at minus 20 degrees Celsius in the darkness of space. You push the button and it'll fire these 10 mile a second jets of plasma. No heaters needed. So that's one of its attributes. So that's how you throttle electric propulsion, evidently. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so, okay, so th- those those are those pucks, uh, as you call it, because that was another question I had. Is because uh, and and this will be in the there will be images of this of these pictures in the show notes. But yeah, so the pucks are, are heating elements essentially to melt and convert the solid fuel into a plasma, and then you can uh, eject that. And so. I saw, yeah, another image of a uh, what look like a six pucks arrayed uh, two by three, and there there's these kind of like blue arcs cutting across them, and so that's just that's just them in in motion, I guess. Yeah, well said. That's a good observation. So they're not, if I may, I don't like to describe them as heating elements because that gives the notion to the viewer, the reader, the listener that something hot is happening. What's curious is the puck itself is cold, but just for a millisecond, for a microsecond at a time, in local spots on the surface, like fireflies winking on and off, you're creating these local craters of giant pressure and temperature. But the rest of the material is relatively cold. The puck itself is running, for your information, at less than 100 degrees Celsius. It's nowhere near melt, nowhere near glowing red hot or anything. It's a cold metal that locally creates these interesting events. Any metal can be used in its place. And the sparks that you're seeing, those tracks, uh, within that millisecond or so of each arc, you get hundreds of these things, these fireflies flickering on and off. And that picture you're looking at on those six pucks is one particular snapshot of where they were just at that instant. An instant later, they're all somewhere else. And eventually they cover the whole surface of the puck and they erode it. And at the end of millions of shots, you wind up with a deep crater with all that metal gone. It's gone to space and it's generated all this impulse that has moved the spacecraft. Okay. Thank you, Chris, for clarifying that. Um, especially in retrospect, I realize like literally warming something up like that is historically about the least efficient way of <laughs> producing energy. And so thank you. So I was wondering, given that this is a a type of hybrid and the idea to make it simpler for the customer is to have them pre-integrated and uh, turnkey, as you say. How challenging is that to bring two very different types of propulsion technology together? And I guess at the same time, I'm also wondering, what is the relative arrangement, I, uh, if, if it has been defined yet, or if that's still kind of being worked out? How would these would these be sitting side by side? Would they be concentric to each other? Uh, how exactly does this whole kind of thing work out? That's an excellent observation on your part. And the flexibility of this design is that you've seen the pictures with nozzles for chemical prop that can be arrayed anywhere. Typically, you could put them on the four corners. So you have maximum flexibility. You fire one, you can get torque. You fire all four of them, you get thrust. And you can get two axis control. You can put the nozzle at 90 degrees and you get roll. So you can do pitch, yaw, and roll for a spacecraft, all from a single tank. 
just by sending tiny fuel lines to these local nozzles. Well, with metal plasma thruster, you can do the same thing, but at 1,000 times lower thrust. So that has to be kept in mind. But you can array these pucks anywhere you want on the surface of the spacecraft and have the driver, the pulsed power, if you will, the PPU, deep inside the craft where it's nicely shielded by the batteries, by other metal, so it's easier to radiation shield it. It doesn't have to be near the surface where it's facing the fury of our friendly sun all the time. And so you just have electrical lines. And to come back to your question about the integration, let's get down to brass tacks. What does the EP need? It literally needs a micro USB or any RS-232 or any interface and a command from the central computer of the satellite that says go or stop. We do everything else. There's a microcontroller that can be programmed to fire 1,000 cycles, 10,000 cycles, only 100 cycles, to fire puck one followed by puck four, then two, and then three, or any other combination. And so all of that is done on board. Ditto for the chemprop, right? Once the satellite just tells the chemprop, go, it does everything else. How long it's going to be on, which nozzles are going to be fired at any given time and for how long, etc. The guidance, navigation and control, this mobility package that Chris has been describing is nothing other than just having a control board with firmware and we just write the software that says for this mission, anytime you make a command decision that you've got to switch from a Newton or two Newtons of thrust down to a millinewton, here's the protocol and just go. And on the fly, from the ground with telemetry, this can be commanded. It doesn't have to be a built-in package and you have to live with what you've designed. It's reactive as needed. We may have already sent you a photo of what I think will be, you know, we've been in this co-marketing phase for several months. And that's kind of what gave us the confidence that the demand is there. Um, we've, we've engaged with dozens of customers and expect to be able to announce first order bookings this year. And the, and the configuration that seems to be really compelling in that size, 50 to 200 kilogram class, is either four thrust, chem thrusters in the corners with two or four metal plasma thrusters in the center. Or you kind of invert that and it's two or four metal plasma thrusters with a single chem thruster down the center. And that really comes down to, again, mission ops, what they have planned, as well as their ability to control torque. When folks are used to electric propulsion or no propulsion, even one Newton is a lot of torque to manage with control wheels and that. So that's why we would advise and recommend a four thruster configuration so we can control our own torque and do that thrust vector control with off pulse modulation and, and, and other techniques. So that all that flexibility, these are modular. These are meant to not be, there is no engineering going on when one gets ordered. It's a configuration. Where do they want the different parts we have sitting on the shelf? We'll configure it in the way that makes sense. And then if needed, we'll make some custom software and commands built into our computer. And, and again, it'll be a comm bus and a power bus going into our Devo electronics and we'll do the rest. So, that, so those are the two configurations that we expect to ship out the door as hybrid units initially. Well, thank you. You addressed one of the questions I had, I was also thinking of, which is how exactly do you interface this 
with all the variety of you know spacecraft buses that are out there, um, the idea of just for CubeSats only having something that fits in a one U or two U, you know, you just say, all right, you just make that space for our system, and we'll literally plug it in there. But you will bring the propulsion system, the the, the GNC, but how they want it arranged on their particular vehicle, that's something that is kind of worked out. So I thought it was very interesting, your interest in uh, OSAM, on-orbit servicing, assembly manufacturing, and how this really fits into that. Yeah, so because in order to catch up to or get to your target or your rendezvous partner, high thrust is is certainly desirable. So we've we've been part of that conversation for a while. We were fortunate enough to be part of the... uh, the catalyst accelerator that the Air Force puts on in the OSAM cohort. So we learned a lot there, met, met a bunch of great potential partners and collaborators. Um, so we've been thinking about that for a while. That that was also contributed to our interest in, in the GNC software layer. But we always knew there was going to be a balance to work out and rely on parallel tech to, to complete, and that's the proximity docking. You know, we have min impulse bits down into the 25 millinewton second range, but that's not quite adequate if if one of the buses doesn't have it. So at least one of the buses needs to have precision capability. Um, so with metal plasma thruster capability, we can use those to do the the precision fine docking. The last you know twelve inches, six inches into a docking kind of maneuver. That's where we're going to rely on the MPT. That's yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I don't think anyone's ever tried that. I know, right? Vehicles that have docked historically are big things. Big things with billion dollar budgets and it's aspirational. And, you know, the the great part is there's utility and demand today for these parts. So we're going to know a lot about them. They're going to mature. And when it comes to these high stake missions that some folks put in the sci-fi category, I think we're we're about five years out from seeing that. Um, But we are part of the Orbit Fab Tenzing mission. You know, there's a Rafti on board. That's a refueling. So, So we've been part of these discussions for a while can't anticipate exactly when the market will be ready. Right now, it's it's uh, reserved for billion-dollar budgets and geo. We're not that. That's not our identity today. So we do have geo missions. That would be you know a likely place to, to get into this type of operation. Um, but that's how the the two pieces will uh, will fit together in in helping and supporting that OSAM. Also caught my eye was that. So Chris, you had talked about how. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right the the pucks themselves can be any metal. What about the fuel? Because I had read that you're interested in, you know, I guess this would be down the road at some point, you could potentially, you know, it's a metal, a solid metal fuel. And so you could essentially take on orbital or orbital debris and scrap and possibly use that as your propellant. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly, certainly. So what we've actually done after we saw the exciting demonstration recently by, uh, by NanoWorks about the drilling in space, you know, without creating any shards. You may have seen that. That was quite interesting. A high-speed rotating device that actually was cutting metal in space gave us the idea. So we actually have procured some of the steel that goes into these spent fuel bodies that are drifting about in low Earth orbit there forever and got that stainless steel, got that steel, and we sliced it up into 15 thousandths of an inch slices and made a sandwich, which is just like one of the pucks that you see in the two-by-two array. And fortunately for us, NASA is securing some money from headquarters to support a test on their very sensitive thrust stand at NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio, from September 5th to 9th. 
And I'll personally be taking one of these two-by-two arrays with magnesium in one corner, niobium in another, molybdenum, and this sandwich of the spent fuel body to measure the thrust from all four of these things so that we can actually check that box and say, tomorrow if a robot, clever enough to mosey on up to one of these spent fuel bodies, sliced it up, all we've got to do is provide it with the shell of our thruster and it fills the pucks where the pucks would be. It fills that volume with the metal of the spent fuel body itself, fire it, and the fuel body, which is this huge cumbersome object like an elephant out there in orbit, would actually consume itself as it comes back down and burns up. So you don't have to take any propellant up there in order to do the job. It is its own propellant. And if you'll indulge me, a little bit of a dream. The scientist in me has always dreamed one day, it won't be in my lifetime, but one day imagine there's a multi-ton craft that's put up in space made of some metal that's convenient to burn in our MPT, aluminum, titanium, you what you what you will. And it gradually consumes itself by just having a feed mechanism to this array of thrusters. And so tons of it are burned, while only a few hundred kilograms of useful payload winds up. You could actually do the math and you could do a deep space mission that goes from here to Alpha Centauri. And why not? Maybe there's some habitable planet there and you could actually do this propulsion. As long as you have solar power, you might have to have nuclear power, dare I say the word, in order to go that far. (laughs) But it's a self-consuming spacecraft idea that's fully compatible with this metal plasma thruster. That is wild. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's definitely within the realm of kind of levels of propulsion systems that they consider when you want to start going interstellar. You're talking about very slow burns, I guess, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I'd like to also talk about Benchmark's other big announcement that you had uh, so far at SmallSat, which is uh, these collision avoidance kits or COLA. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the <laughs> the, the COLA kit is uh, is essentially a response to space debris and unplanned maneuvers that do require high thrust if we want to share safe space for everybody and, and make it a sustainable ecosystem. It, it, and it, and it's addre- it addresses the microsat class we're talking about right now, but equally important to the ESPA class. So typically we're, you know, we have a, we have a grand hybrid and, and eventually a multi-mode common propellant roadmap at Benchmark. But, but to continue, you know, we really believe in hybrid and so do others. They just don't think it's accessible. To, so to make hybrid more accessible in the ESPA class, we can pair our COLA kit to a non-propulsive, which is hopefully getting rare these days in the ESPA class and, and ESPA value satellites. But we can pair it with a, uh, with a Hall effect thruster effectively. So Hall effect is a clear winner for a lot of station keeping and, and, and um, maneuvers that don't require any speed or haste. But admittedly, by most operators and, and even some EP providers, it does have a challenge for late warning conjunctions and, and other things. And I think as we see more debris, more accidental collisions or intentional um, bad action, um, there'll be more things to avoid, more traffic in popular orbits, and there's going to be a need to have a response to that. And two weeks of estimating orbital dynamics is is not going to be adequate. When, once folks have steering and, and brake capability, 
you can't predict two weeks in advance what the car next is going to do on the highway. And we don't think that's a real ongoing scenario in space. So we're encouraging customers and, and satellite operators with Hall Effect to equip themselves with the ability to have this emergency accessory kit if needed. So, so we've taken the Halcyon unit, heritage components off our first few missions, and we've kind of trimmed down some of the functionality, bells and whistles, designed it as a blowdown system. Again, just, just to hit a price point where it is priced and sized as an accessory that can be installed in satellites that already have a locked design. There is no open up the books and redesign the entire satellite. This thing can slide into a very small corner of your satellite or be modular and, and shoehorned in wherever you may have space for it. And they can give you anywhere from two to 10 collision avoidance maneuvers over the life of, of that spacecraft. And, and that's a good intro. Again, a non-intimidating intro to hybrid and very affordable insurance policy for these 10 to $20 million assets that are going up. The price point is anticipated in the the $100,000 to $150,000 range. Um, So relative to the cost of that asset, especially as these phase out of demonstration where a lot of folks are hedging risk against time to market, when they go to operational assets and have liabilities, they will think differently about the risk of collision and want to have that protection. Um, So so that's what kind of spawned the idea. Um, When we were really kicking around the concept, it it, it had an overwhelmingly positive response from from a lot of our engaged customers who do run Hall Effect, and and that's really what it's designed for. Okay, cool, because that that was my biggest question is, how does this differ from just adding a propulsion system to your spacecraft? And if I understood right, it's it's hybrid, it's been stripped down to be more cost-effective for this one particular job, collision avoidance. Yeah, all right, except the fact that it is the CP piece to enable hybrid. For the folks who are having, who for the folks who already have EP, we're not necessarily. We want everyone to have this, so we don't want to cut in line to say we're distributing a bundled system here. That that is a position we often find ourselves in with the more sophisticated configurations. So we have such an intimate relationship with the customers during that process. But in this case, we're the accessory kit, we're the add-on, and we're engaged with several potential partners that are EP providers. That rather than have this concern, keep their customers and operators up at night and have them jump over to Kemprop so they have that capability. Well, they can retain the Hall effect that, that they think and want or think they want and, and need and use today, but have this little accessory to attach. And, and that's really the, the case. I believe, especially, you know, we've heard since we made the announcement, we've heard there's customers that make one collision avoidance maneuver a month. So... If 10 maneuvers isn't enough, then the whole argument that space is big and traffic isn't an issue really goes away quick. And then they need full-blown hybrid, and that's fine. But we say take anything, please, an emergency kit. And, um, you know, if, if they buy that kit, then they've bought into hybrid being a value. If they're consuming that kit in 10 months because they used 10 maneuvers in 10 months, you know, the possibility exists to equip it with a rafty. Um, from Orbit Fab or any other refueling partner to, to refuel one day, and or they'll make that commitment to uh, to carry a, a, a more robust chemprop piece of, of their system. But I, I'm not encouraging anyone to, to, to drop EP to come to all chemprop. No, I'm saying, hey, let's all work together in non-competitive ways to get people the speed and endurance they need without compromise. And, um, and likewise, because of the traffic situation um, increasing, we're 
partnering with in space, space domain awareness and space traffic data folks who are putting in space sensors because that ground based two weeks to model dynamics model is uh, is likely to age poorly over the next five years. Thank you for yeah clarifying that. So are, would this uh, kit also be capable of deorbiting? Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect for that. If there's any uh, juice left in the tank, so to speak, this relatively orders of magnitude higher thrust is great, not only for deorbit, but controlled deorbit, which means you can point it where you want to go and intentionally deorbit over unpopulated areas or water so that if there is any demisability concern or issue, your, your chances of impacting human on earth is zero. Uh, controlled versus uncontrolled reentry is very topical right now. Um, I believe that report said there's 10% chance of a human catching a piece of space debris and uh, perishing from it in the next 10 years. So uh, less likely than getting a uh, bird spat on you, but it will be an amazing event and hopefully we can help avoid that. All right. So I guess uh, to wrap things up, the penultimate question is um, where would you like to be found on the internet so we can provide it in uh, you know our show notes? Great. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, we've updated our website to include the metal plasma thruster known under the product family as Xantis. So you can go there and check out that and, and the Halcyon product as well. Our data sheets are available at benchmarkspacesystems.com. And if you go to the Benchmark LinkedIn page, there's lots of useful links there too. Okay. And so um, I need to apologize to Ben, uh, who usually ends with our final question, which is a basically a game of over-under and whether you feel like something's overrated or underrated. I'm not clever enough to come up with a list of rapid fire questions for you two. So instead, I'm going to go back to our older final question. And so I guess I'll start with you, Krish. If you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? No, if I'm safe, then I would, I would love to take Kit so that if I ran into some extraterrestrial intelligence, I could at least communicate with them and not look as dumb as I really am. There you go. Good answer. How about you, Chris? Well, I'd say my favorite playlist. I do. Uh, I have interest in sensory deprivation at times, but I think being in space for extended period might make me want some uh, some of my favorite music. That's both practical and fun. Okay, with that, uh, I just want to say thank you, Chris and Chris, for uh, joining us. This was a super interesting conversation, and uh, we hope to hear. Uh, we'll be basically listening for more wonderful things and keeping an eye out in particular for the uh, the hybrid mobility package as well as these uh, cola kits. And so thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks, Dennis. I appreciate you helping us get the word out. All right. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, this week, we just got two winners. I didn't think my clue was that hard, but maybe it was. We have Deskin Miller and Chris, a.k.a. Stargarfield. So the clue was when east meets west it's a good thing and the event was the 29th of august 2001 and it was the maiden launch of the h2a launch vehicle famous launch vehicle from japan so i I just have two main sources here and one of which is wikipedia there's not a whole lot that i could find i'm guessing because like you know you've had this problem in the past dennis it's probably mostly in japanese Mm -hmm. um as far as any details you want on this but i I think this is a pretty good rundown of the h2a vehicle um and i think that's the important thing because the maiden launch itself wasn't too eventful although it was successful 
successful. So this is a successful, you know, this is like a positive twist because we have like a lot that are about something going wrong. And this is one where <laughs> something went right. And the only time you can talk about something going right and have it be something that's mentioned is when it's like a precedent of some sort or a first. And this is the first. So this is the first launch. So that's why we're talking about it. So, yeah, with that in mind, I figured we should talk about the vehicle itself, since that's probably the most interesting thing. Um, I guess first we should talk about the H2 launch vehicle, right? So this is the H2A, which was um, launched on the 29th of August, 2001, but the H2 was its predecessor, and that itself was developed to increase domestic ability to launch larger payloads, but it only flew seven times between 1994 and 1999, so it wasn't very active, and it had one failure and one partial failure, so not a good record there. And basically, it was just too expensive. Uh, and, you know, not as reliable as they had hoped. So that's what precipitated the development of the H-2A. And this rocket, unlike some other ones which share the same name but have nothing in common, this really is just like an upgrade, um, but it's a pretty significant one. So it's like a lot of, I, th I think I think all the engines and everything are the same. They're just upgraded versions of them. So it is still very much an H-2 rocket. It's just, you know, the H-2A, uh, right. the better, faster, cheaper one. So the first guess that we had correct, like I said, was from Deskin Miller, and he had a three-part tweet which where he kind of like laid it out very well so uh the points that he made um I, th I think his initial guess he said that everything he said was wrong um because or at least it wasn't accurate so because it wasn't this was not a jaxa launch vehicle which right now it's it's also not it was for a period of time but it started off as something that was developed by nasda right so this is if i get if i have this right right dennis this mm. is before the whole transformer, exactly. You call it, yeah. The bureaucratic Voltron. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I was looking for. The bureaucratic Voltron. Yeah. So this was developed by NASDA, uh, and then um, it was uh, eventually transferred to JAXA. Uh, the H two A was transferred to them, and that was in two thousand three, uh, just shortly after JAXA was created. And the uh, but the first launch under JAXA, uh, which was the sixth launch of the vehicle, that resulted in a total loss of the vehicle due to a gas leak in the SR be motor. So I don't think that that was, well, it might have been why it was transferred then on to Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And that is currently who manages the production, uh, you know, who manufactures the vehicle. This is uh, totally a Mitsubishi Heavy Industries vehicle. And um, that happened in 2007. So since that time, there's been no direct involvement with, you know, JAXA or the uh, bureaucratic Voltron. So um, let's talk about the specs of the H2A. Uh, it is 53 meters tall and 57 with a larger capacity fairing. It has a four meter diameter. Uh, and the first stage, and keep in mind that these are all just kind of like upgrades of the previous versions. The first stage is powered by a Hydrolox LE7A engine, and the one prior to that didn't have the A. So the A just indicates that it's part of the H2A launch vehicle. Um, so this one has 1,100 kilonewtons of thrust, uh, slightly less ISP. Uh, so it went from 446 seconds down to 440, and this was just due to the simplification in the manufacturing. Um, and again, this is to get the cost down. So there was less welding, there was more machined and more cast components, and there were fewer injection elements, which um, I suppose is probably the main thing maybe which uh, you know brings down the ISP I'm not sure actually but if you look at the two of them side by side it's kind of like a it's kind of like a Raptor versus a Raptor 2.0 like the new version looks plumbing. yeah mm -hmm. it, yeah it looks significantly simpler and it just looks lighter too um, I don't know if it is but it's it, yeah they definitely took off a lot of that plumbing 
um, and they got the cost down as well. For the second stage, that's powered by another Hydrolux engine, and that is the LE5B-2. Um, and I think actually I say I put two in there. That might be what it's currently operating with the, but initially I think it was the, the LE5A because they all had A that came after them. Right now they're on the B-2 version. But uh, the second stage, uh, just one engine and it has a, that has 145 kilonewtons of thrust. And this also has less ISP down three seconds of ISP. So it's a 440 second, or I'm sorry, it's a 447 seconds from 450. What's interesting about this engine is it was the first expander bleed cycle engine that was ever put into service, which I think is a pretty cool record. Hmm. Yeah. I can't think of what the second one was, but probably is that what the, the RL10, is that an expander bleed cycle? Or just an expander cycle? Right, I totally I don't, don't remember now. Oh, yeah, yeah, check that out, man. Okay. You're good. Yeah, the uh, the the RL10 and then uh, the Ariane Six's Vinci will will be expander cycles. Expander's the one where the 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 coolant, the regeneratively cooled fuel, then goes to drive the when it gets warmed up, it drives the pump. Yeah, the fuel circulates through uh, the combustion chamber and the engine nozzle, possibly depending on like depending on your version. Mm. That's used to power the turbo pump, and then from there it's actually dumped back into the engine, or it's actually right, dumped right. into the combustion chamber. The bleed cycle actually bleeds a little bit of that off in the part of uh, the expanded gas that powers the turbo pump. That is just dumped overboard, and then the rest of it is put into the engine, and um, that actually alleviates some of like the back pressure. So it's you don't you're not dealing with um, these insane pressures trying to force that gas into the engine. What's interesting is that uh, the LE5A version, the first version of this, that circulated the hydrogen through both the combustion chamber and the nozzle. The new version is just the combustion chamber, so they actually changed that a little bit. I'm not oh. sure how the nozzle's cooled now, but they did change uh, the engine cycle a little bit, but yeah. but it's still an expander bleed cycle engine. And those are some awesome ISPs, so... Yeah, they are very, very good, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, a couple seconds lower, but still, they're in the 440s. That's mm. really impressive. So let's talk about the boosters. Uh, so the H2A has usually, I believe, always two side boosters, which are the SRB-A versions. So these are, again, you know, the A. Um, the old versions didn't have the A. Um, I didn't have a lot on these. Uh, they are developed by Ishikawajima Heavy Industries. So this is another company that actually develops the boosters. Uh, they are 2.5 meters by 15.1 meters. Um, and they provide uh, 2,260 kilonewtons of thrust each. They do appear to always be on the H2A vehicle, right? So you can't launch it without those. I mean, maybe you could, but I think it always has the side boosters. Yeah, anytime I'm seeing a list yeah, of variants, they always show you with two uh, yeah. SRBs on there. So Now, you can go up to four, but you can't have any less than two. So, so <laughs> that's kind of like the deal there. And then there is the also optional um, solid strap-on boosters and... Uh, these uh, are Castor 4A-XL boosters, and they were provided by ATK at the time. So this is the Western connection, and this is why, you know, I said, mm -hmm. like, when East meets West, it's a good thing. Um, so, yeah, they were developed by ATK, which is now under Northrop Grumman, or they now are, I guess, Northrop Grumman. Um, and uh, they've been discontinued. So when, when I was taking a look at all the flights, they flew on just 10 missions. The last one was, I think, a couple years ago, and uh, they have actually been discontinued completely, so they're no longer going to be flying with those, which kind of sucks. As far as the thrust, they are 740 kilonewtons of thrust with an ISP of 280 seconds, which I guess is pretty good for solids. So getting to the nomenclature so we can understand, you know, are we talking about 
solids and strap-ons or like whatever. Like we talk about pretty often uh, the H2A like launching in the 202 configuration. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, and that's because uh, that's the only version that flies now. But let's just go through the numbers anyway. So the first number indicates the number of stages and uh, the vehicle can only have I think it can only have two stages. I don't think there was ever a plan to have three or more or anything like that. So that number, I guess, was always going to stay the same. Uh, the second number indicates the number of liquid boosters. And since it uses solid rocket boosters, uh, that number has always been zero. There was, you know, plans of possibly using uh, liquid boosters, but uh, that never happened. Um, at least I don't think it did. I'd have to go back and look at the list there, but I think that that never actually even, they just never did that. If I remember correctly, th this is where they, they've had the option of just one liquid booster and having this very asymmetric looking I think so, yeah. rocket, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. I think we talked about that like a y years ago or something. So yeah, that was an option, but, uh, it has since been canceled. The third number in uh, the 202 configuration or whatever it might be is, uh, the number of, uh, the SRBC solid rocket booster. So again, uh, it's always at least two, could be four, um, and it has flown in that configuration as well. So they have had, uh, four solid rocket boosters. Uh, so it's usually like either 202 or 204. Um, and then there is an optional fourth number, which would be the solid strap-on boosters, which again, they flew for a while on 10 different missions and then they've since been canceled. And you can have a maximum of four of those. And those would kind of sit where just one of the solid rocket boosters were. So you'd have like, you know, two solids on the side and then two quadrants of the vehicle. That's where you would put the two solids each. So you would have a total of four. Mm. So from this point forward, it looks like it's just going to fly in the 202 configuration. The other ones have either been canceled or they've been discontinued. So there's no other variants from this point forward. Might be because they are working on the H3. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that's the idea. <laughs> yeah. So they're just putting like a pause on it and then uh, they'll, you know, move on to the next big thing. So I didn't look up any information on that because, again, this is more about the H2A. But, uh, yeah, the H3, I'm curious to know what that's going to look like. From what I see, it looks mm -hmm. very similar. So it's going to have, you know, the, the a, a really big core with these smaller uh, solids on the side, um, similar to the H2A. But I think from what I can see, it's going to be a – the SRVs are going to be derived and presumably improved from the – uh, SRBAs that you're talking about now, and mm -hmm. also that there's going to be uh, multiple of these uh, different engine. The one I think they've been having problems with it, and that's kind of what's been slowing uh, the H3 um, maiden flight. But it's 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 also an expander bleed cycle, um, the LE9, and I think they're gonna they're gonna have a couple of those on the first stage, uh, as opposed to just having one LE engine there. But it looks very similar. Cool. So still very much of the same heritage, which I think is kind of cool. They're just making these incremental improvements, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's how you know what kind of vehicle you're flying. But it's probably not necessary because it'll just be in the 202 configuration. Um, <laughs> so I guess we should talk about the actual event, the maiden flight. This launched from Tanagashima, um, launched in the 202 configuration. Uh, the payload. So it flew something called the VEP-2, uh, and this is the vehicle evaluation payload. The VEP-1, or it was just called VEP, that flew on uh, the H-2. So again, like they really, 
like right down to the payload, they just flew a newer version of everything. <laughs> the VEP2 was um, basically there to characterize the vehicle's performance. So it was there uh, to get an idea of the acceleration and uh, the deformation, which I assume that has to do with any kinds of bends and stresses that are put on the vehicle, like during its descent to orbit, right? Because I don't know what else deformation means uh, in this context. But uh, yeah, so the VEP2 stays attached to the second stage. So it's kind of like a payload, but it still uh, remains where the rocket, you know, sends back data. But what's interesting is it also had a smaller payload attached to it, which was called the LRE, which is the laser ranging equipment, which is an interesting generic name that is deployed by the VEP2. And that provides ranging via retro reflectors, and it's there to determine the accuracy of the orbital injection. So I guess this is also how they were able to determine how well it got to its targeted orbit, which I would think there's other ways of doing that. Maybe they just wanted very accurate readings, but yeah, they used a retro reflector. And I think that this was a purely passive object. So uh, they would just shoot their lasers at it, get the ping back. And then that's how they kind of knew where things were. And uh, it looks pretty interesting. It, it's got like, these facets and it has these little retro reflective mirrors on it. Space disco ball. Yeah, it's a space disco ball. Yeah, we that see. That's cool. There are, there seems to be a lot of space disco balls in space. Yep. Like we talked about more than a couple of them. Go figure. The sphere is a useful shape. Yeah. Yeah. It has a diameter of 51 centimeters and it carries 24 glass sheets and 126 prisms on its surface. So yeah, just imagine a disco ball. That's pretty much what it looks like. Yeah. They're saying it's a, a, a geodesy satellite, mm. which I wonder if they, that means they got any kind of like gravitational measurements out of it. I mean, you you measure its distance very accurately, and you kind of get and uh, yeah, this. as as the upper stage and the LRE, you know, as the distance between them changes as they fly over different gravitational anomalies, that's what you measure to figure out this. Well, that could be yeah. Uh, well, it was put into a Molnia orbit. Do you think that that'd be useless for a lot of it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, because I was gonna say I think that was just. Um, kind of like the first part of doing a GTO transfer, like they didn't want to actually do that, but they needed to know that it could perform its primary mission, which for most H2 flights, it seems, are to put things into GTO and then also sun synchronous orbit. But that that seems to be most launches uh, that the H2A does. But yeah, like I said, a very successful mission. Um, They had some not so successful ones down the line, but uh, since 2003, I think they've all been successes. So very reliable vehicle since then nice. so that's your quick short and sweet on the h2a rocket well thank you david that was that was interesting uh next week is going to be the 30th of august to the 5th of september uh dennis do you have a clue for us i do next week in 2002 that's no moon that's some of Huntington Beach's finest work. Is this a reference to bodybuilding or something? Is that what happens to Huntington hmm. Beach? I get that. Or is that Venice Beach? <laughs> That's. I think that's Venice Beach, yeah. <laughs> okay. Hun- Huntington Beach is, uh, is washing machines. Oh, yeah. You mean, well, like blenders and stuff? Yeah. All right. Well, if you have a guess as to what this uh, counter countertop stand mixer clue is in reference to, uh, shoot us a tweet. Uh, use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. In case you were ever wondering, that's where we get a lot of our a lot of our information. So uh, mm-hmm. we have four launches coming up. And what is the first one, Dennis? Well, the first one is on August 24th, maybe. Um, this is coming off of NOTAMs, but uh, it's a, it would be a Long March 2D uh, with the uh, possibly uh, Gillian 1, uh, Galfon uh, payloads. I think they typically send more than one of these up at a time. But uh, in any event, um, 
that may be uh, flying. Uh, this would be on August 24th again with a window from 0253 to 0331 UTC. And uh, these vehicles uh, fly out of Taiwan. After that, we have Artemis 1 uh, festivities commencing. <laughs> Uh, so this is uh, August 27th, that's Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern. NASA TV is going to be airing uh, the post-mission management team uh, status briefing. And then at 2.30 p.m., they will be airing 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. Also on Saturday, they'll be airing the uh, pre-launch news coverage. And this is specifically NASA's Moon to Mars exploration plans uh, that that may or may not actually have anything interesting in it. Uh, but then what is going to be really cool is uh, Sunday, uh, August 28th at 9 a.m. So that's before we start recording the show. If you're interested, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, NASA TV will be airing uh, the Artemis One Countdown Status Briefing. And uh, that's that's going to be really cool. Then after that, on the 20th, we had the launch of a Falcon 9. And this is with Starlink or for Starlink. 4-23. This is another 53 satellites, it looks like, for the Starlink Mega Constellation. I feel like we do one of these every single week now. So yeah, um, just got to at least brush through it real quick. Yeah. So um, it's launching at 0222 UTC from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. So as always, check it out if you'd like. And if not, you can watch one the next week. <laughs> and then finally, rounding things out, uh, we got a little something called SLS, maybe. Uh, <laughs> flying on Maybe, August 29th. Yeah. And so this would be the uncrewed Artemis 1 mission. Obviously, we've talked about it a lot on the show, and I'm sure you've seen it elsewhere. Uh, really big deal. Fingers crossed that it'll fly. And as you can imagine, NASA TV is going to be having uh, coverage uh, all day for you. And so on the 29th, again, this is a Monday, at 12 a.m., so in your brain, think really late on uh, Sunday night uh, at midnight. Coverage will begin for the fueling of the uh, SLS. I'm not going to call it the SLS moon rocket <laughs> of the SLS Artemis one uh, rocket. And uh, that is uh, again, yeah, 12 a.m. Eastern. So midnight Eastern. Uh, and then at 6:30 a.m. Coverage will begin for the launch with the uh, two hour window uh, opening at 8:33 a.m. Uh, Eastern daylight time. And then at noon, uh, hopefully, if it flies, then they would have the Artemis 1 post-launch news conference, which uh, I can imagine are going to have a lot of happy, smiling faces, because uh, I'm going to assume it'll be a nice nominal launch if it does go. And then at 4 p.m., this is fun, uh, coverage of Orion's first outbound trajectory correction burn. Uh, coverage of things like that is always good, including... Uh, at 5.30 p.m., coverage of Orion's first imagery of the Earth following the TLI. And so all of that, again, is on August 29th, Monday, uh, the biggie. Uh, we'll see if we talk about this next week, if it's scrubbed, because it does have the window that extends into next week. And so either way, mm -hmm. uh, good luck and uh, Godspeed, Artemis 1, with your several uh, partial mannequins and then, of course, Munikin, uh, uh, Art Ar Arturo Munikin. Uh, I forget his exact name, but yeah. Uh, good luck and Godspeed. <laughs> yep. All right. 
So those are your upcoming space flight events for this week. All right. Well, which means it's time to do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Calvin Stew, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Colin, Mike, Space is Kind of Cool, Chubby, Leon Running Man, and Deathkin for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're at Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.